Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless. Hey, Lord, thank you for your word for us this morning. Uh, God, I do pray that you, that you would give us um, a great desire to be taught by you, that your word would be our great joy, that we would be people who delight in the gift of your revelation to us in Holy Scripture, and most of all, in the gift of our Lord Jesus, who is the Word made flesh. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Okay, so uh, I think one of the really wild things about our time, the time that we live in, is that we are both more connected and more disconnected than probably any time that we've ever lived in. Um, I think that I've been told probably about a dozen times in the seven and a half years that we've lived here now, that um, the main towns in this area were sort of set up with basically a horse rides distance, a day horse rides distance. And so from Harrisburg to Mechanicsburg, considering that you actually had to cross the Susquehanna, would essentially be a day's journey. Or down to Carlisle would be a day's journey. Or from Carlisle down to Shippensburg and Shippensburg down to Chambersburg and Chambersburg down to Hagerstown. So it's kind of a day's journey of on horseback. Um, churches like our own, when this church was started, you know, first sort of dreamed up as a small Bible study from Salem uh, Reformed downtown in 1864. Well, this was a neighborhood church. You came here by foot, right? And I know some of you did that, but many of you probably didn't. Um, and, of course, as technology advanced, distance seemed to become shorter and shorter. Uh, horses gave way to train, gave way to cars, gave way to planes. And now, um, in wonderfully and sort of un unfortunately in some regards, you can find out the latest on the flooding in Pakistan, this horrendous flooding that's been happening in Pakistan with just a few clicks on your computer, on your phone, right? Um, or with regards to churches, uh, I just heard that you can pay over $1,000 to sit near the front of an elevation worship and, and hear Stephen Furtick preach on tour. That's a pretty far cry from 1864 and walking to church. Um, Here's the thing, we all know, I think we all know that there are actually a great many blessings to globalization. There are many blessings that come along with this kind of advancing technology. But we also know that anxiety is, is at an all-time high. Um, maybe you read the stats that recently came out, um, I read them on the CDC's website, that in the U.S., from just 2020 to 2021, there was a 4% increase in suicide rates. And actually, the largest increase happened between the age of ages of 15 to 24, where there's a, there was an 8% jump in the U.S. I mean, there is a huge gift in knowing that there are people all over the world that have massively different stories than your own, uh, different beliefs, right? Different political takes and religious takes. There's a really there's a great gift to having neighbors that speak different languages and whose stories are just incredibly different than your own. It actually helps you see life so much more fully. 
and helps you maybe sort of correct different sort of nuances and perspectives that you may have. Um, these are great gifts. But I think what it also does in all of us is it makes me go, who, who am I? What people do I belong to? Um, what am I supposed to believe and do and hope for and desire and all this stuff? We kind of just have all these floods of questions that haunt us all the time. And I think that, all, that gets down to this sort of basic question that I want to pose, and it's just this. Um, what orients you? What orients you? What gives you a sense of who you are and, and where you are and, um, and what you're to be about and what you're supposed to hope for, which means what are you supposed to work towards and all this stuff, like what orients you? Which you could say, to use sort of Christianese, who's discipling you, right? How are you being discipled in the world? Uh, mo most, well, I don't know about most of you. I, I've heard from many of you that you've seen that sort of documentary movie, The Social Dilemma. And The Social Dilemma sought to show how the very technology that connects us together, social media and, and news networks, they also monetize us, right? The dollar sign on you. And that leads to manipulating you and to distracting you and to disconnecting you and actually to dividing us and then polarizing us, right? It's actually deeply scary in a way. Um, I listened to this podcast this past week, um, and it was highlighting some research, and probably some of you have heard this too, that's come out, that's been done over the last couple of years. Um, the Barna Group, which is a Christian organization that studies sort of religious trends and different religious statistics. The Barna Group said that in 2021, 43% of pastors were saying, I want to give up. If I had another job to do, I would go do it, 43%. And the Hartford Institute for Religious Research said that 67% said that 2000. 21 was the worst year of their ministry. Um, and I'm sure, actually, many of you might say the last couple of years were some of the hardest years of your life. Um, this very morning, actually, I learned about a friend of mine who um, has been a pastor for 15 years. Actually, he's been a pastor at that church for 15 years. He'd been a pastor at two other churches the previous 10 years, and he is becoming a, a plumber. He had a retirement party yesterday. Um, but anyway, this, this, this podcast was highlighting a pastor in Arkansas, his name is Kevin Thompson, and, and Kevin Thompson is 44 years old. I'm 40, so he's just four years older than me, and he's been a pastor at this church, Community Bible Church in Arkansas, for 19 years, and 15 of those years, he has been the senior pastor. When he first went there 19 years ago, this church was 300 people, and as of last year, it was 1,600 people. And so, I mean, you, by the way, that's amazing, right? Uh, just as a pastor, that's a remarkable, remarkable thing. And so he, he has left us. He's left the church. Um, he said it sort of began in 2016 with the run-up to the election in 2016. People started getting together with him and saying, hey, you need to start saying people need to vote for Trump or people need to vote for Hillary. By the way, I did have some of those conversations here around that time from both perspectives. Um, so what he did was he wrote a blog post on his church's uh, blog saying essentially, hey, I understand that people who are well-intended Christians are going to vote differently for these, these candidates. But he did also say, I'm personally going to vote for a third party. He put that up there. 
And he was on vacation when he posted this blog, which is ridiculous why anyone would do that. And his wife even told him not to, he said. I'm going to listen to my wife. Because his phone starts blowing up with things like this. How dare you? You are in the ministry for yourself. Where is your heart? He said that he got a message saying this. You're part of the people leading this country into moral decay. And this is where he went, actually. He said, it wasn't just that I was wrong, but that I was evil. Okay. So th- that was a hugely difficult time. But he actually said, you know, that time passed. He said that, that kind of passed. And then when George Floyd was killed, you know, a couple people called him a Marxist. And he said that time passed, too. But what really happened last year that was sort of the straw that broke his back was that he was riffing in a sermon. Um, you know, I have a manuscript here, but I often, I'll go off it. You all know that sometimes to my detriment and to your own. And, um, and he's going off, and he's talking about how God is both gentle, but he's also present. And he's with us. And he was saying, you know, there's some celebrities that you look at them and you think, that's a real, gen- that's a real gentle person. And yet they're so distant. And he, and he says, you know, like Oprah or Jay-Z or Tom Hanks. That was sort of, you know, innocuous, no big deal. Well, he started getting all these emails saying, why would you mention Tom Hanks in a sermon? How dare you mention Tom Hanks? And uh, he's a little flabbergasted by this, but he looks it up and finds that there is a theory, a QAnon theory, that says that Tom Hanks is the kingpin of a pedophile, Hollywood pedophile group. I actually didn't know that until I listened to this podcast. But here's where he went. He said, I mean, these people that I love, and then I'm at the hospital as their mom is dying, and I'm with them as their baby is born, and I'm looking at them at at this moment going, I don't have a clue how to pastor you right now. Because, he went on to say, Fox News gets you for 10 hours a week, and I might, if you show up, when you show up on occasion, get you for one. And it just forces you to say, what's orienting you? I mean, really, what, what's consuming your time? Sit with that for a moment. How much time are you spending scrolling through feeds, training your mind? How much time do you spend, do you spend just reading the news articles that are all oriented towards your bias all, already, and we all know it. It's like a known thing now, and we just keep going. What's orienting? Okay, think about this. Here we have this community in ancient Jerusalem, 440s-ish B.C., right? Um, And some of them, I want you to think about this. Some of them had returned from Babylon. Some of them likely had been taken away by the Assyrians back in 721 when the Assyrian exile happened with the ten northern tribes. But they've made their way back. Some of them have been left there because they weren't the best and the brightest and the most beautiful, like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They were still left there. In, in Judah, when the um, Babylonian exile happened in 586, around there. Um, some of them were governors we've read about. Some of them were bricklayers. Remember, some of them were goldsmiths and perfumers, the perfumer. I love that detail that we had heard about earlier, how the perfume, perfumer was helping build the wall. And some of them were Levites, and they were priests. And, of course, some of, one of them, Nehemiah, is this massively powerful person in the Persian Empire, the cupbearer to Artaxerxes himself over at the capital in Susa. Um, Chapter 5, 
told us that all these people, though we'd, you know, they were working on the wall together, they were actually fighting amongst themselves and they were charging interest of one another to the extent that their children were going into slavery. So I don't want you to think back and say, oh, these communities back in the day, they were just so communal. You know, some like fuzzy nostalgia about the good old days. And they never happened, okay? They never happened. I mentioned a few weeks back that, you know, the year of Jubilee, we never have recorded for us in Scripture actually taking place, okay? So don't think like, oh, man, if we could just get back to 1864, we're all walking in. Um, but here's what I am saying is that these are people from really different backgrounds. I mean, significantly different backgrounds. Actually, of their day, it would have been the globalization of their day. All these people coming together, even though they had a history together, they were, you know, they'd been trained in other countries, and they're coming back together to rebuild the walls. And there they're having all the conflicts that happen when there's class differences and, and you know, language differences and all this kind of stuff. And they're being forced with this question, what is orienting us? How, like, how do we be who we are supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? Who are we? Where have we been and where are we going? I mean, we all know that now we do probably spend more time on things like Instagram and Facebook and whatever news network we are tied into than you do in Holy Scripture. I mean, it's a good three weeks if you're here three, three weeks in a row, right? So what's orienting us? Um, what is orienting our thoughts? What we really give time to thinking about. What's orienting our desires, the things that we love and the things that we cherish? What's orienting our hopes? What are we aiming towards with our lives? Um, let me ask this. What's orienting how you think about other people? That's maybe a good diagnostic. Um, can they be dismissed and discarded? Can they be objectified and abused? Uh, are people made in the image of God and they inherently have dignity and value? Um, maybe ask this question of yourself to get at this. Um, how do you speak and think about people who voted differently? What are the words that you associate with those people? What's shaping us? What's orienting us? But what I'm telling, what I'm trying to suggest to you is these are the questions that this community is asking. They are. Um, the wall was built. We actually saw that last week. It was chapter 6. The wall was built, even though it seemed like it was a detail that was sort of brushed over because of all this other stuff that's happened. Um, chapter 7, which is actually a chapter, we're going to do this again, where I just kind of skipped over a little bit. We looked at it a little bit last week. But chapter 7 is a long genealogy, and the genealogy ends with this. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their own towns. So what you're supposed to get when you get to chapter 8 is the wall's done and the people have sort of resituated themselves into life in Israel and around Jerusalem. And they kind of, they're kind of settling back into what they're going to be and what they're going to do. And so this is how chapter 8 begins. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. 
So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. What do they do? They're like, who are we going to be? What, we're to, what are we to be about? They say, bring the Bible out. That's what they say. Let us listen and teach us that we can have understanding. And they, it says they gave their attention. They were attentive to what it was. They say, we need to be taught. We need to hear God's word and help us orient our lives. Um, there were quite a few reasons why I wanted us together to look at the book of Nehemiah right now. One of those reasons was because it sort of feels like we've been in exile, um, you know, for like two and a half years. Um, we've lived at a distance from one another. There were times where we were worshiping on screens, where we were gathering together outside. Um, there were long stretches where we weren't in one another's homes and things like that. Um, and I think we just needed to consider together, what does it mean to rebuild a community, right? Because we actually do have to sort of rebuild our community. Um, what does it mean to rebuild our church? Uh, I mean, some folks have moved away, and we actually didn't even get to say goodbye to some people, right? It's, it's awful. Um, there were some people that left our church, a few, because they really didn't like how we approached dealing with COVID stuff. There were some folks that passed away, right? Carl Aronson, Rick Bacharach, Tiny, most recently Anna Pant. And we didn't get to say goodbye to those people. You didn't. It's been a very strange season. Um, so that's one reason, like just asking the question, what does it mean and how do we sort of think about rebuilding, doing that kind of work? Um, another, another reason why I thought this would be good is that we are actually trying to move towards what do we do with our physical buildings? Right, which is actually part of the problem with Nehemiah. They're like, you know, the whole reason why Nehemiah comes back from Susa, his brother Hanani comes and says, hey, the walls are all in ruins. He says, well, let's go back and rebuild them. And we're just collectively with Logos Academy trying to say, what is, how can we use our building best so that it serves both institutions well? And, um, and, you know, what we've done is we actually hired an architect, and they've done drawings, and we've submitted a big, long grant proposal, and actually tomorrow our senator is going to be here meeting with Logos people to, you know, talk about some of that stuff, and we're really hoping and praying that we can actually move forward, and what do we do with this big space that God's given us that needs to be cared for? Um, but here's also what I was intending with the book of Nehemiah. This book is not just about rebuilding the wall. I mean, think just last week, how quickly the wall being completed just seemed to it was just mentioned in passing. So, like, wait, that's not the main thing? No. Um, rebuilding a community is about those things. But it's also about our approach to God, to life with him. Our life together doesn't exist outside of, outside of, our, outside of our life with God. And so it has to do with how we approach the word, or we'll see in the future how we approach confession and how we approach our life with regards to how we are literally living in the ways of the Lord. All of this stuff is completely intertwined in the Bible. It all goes together. Um, your two medication quotes, I wanted to highlight actually both these. Um, T.S. Eliot says this, what have you if you have not life together? 
there is not life that is not community. But then he goes on to say, and, and there's no community that's not lived in praise to God. The community has to orient itself towards the Lord, right? We were made in his image, in the image of God, plural, male and female, and yet we were made to walk with him, to not exist in community outside of him, but alongside of him. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, what determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done for both to both of us. This is not true merely at the beginning, as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. It remains so for all the future and to all eternity. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. That is so big in our time. Let me read that phrase again. Um, the more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ do we have one another wholly for eternity. What I'm suggesting to you is that the word has to unite us. And this is what we see. When they're saying, who are we going to be? It says, bring out the Bible and teach us. We want to know. So what's this community do? This is what they basically say. Ezra, get out that Bible. We're going to sit and we just want you to read it to us. But then actually after a long, long reading, you say it was from the morning to midday, they actually break up into groups. <laughs> and they start having it understood. In fact, the word understand shows up five different times here. Um, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. Uh, verse 3. Let me read the, the last part of it. Uh, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Uh, verse 7. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Those guys helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Verse 8. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading down in verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood. They're like, teach us because we want to know. We want to understand. We want the Bible not just to be something out there but in here. We want to know you and your ways and your stories and how you've worked in the world and how you've taught and corrected and changed and shaped. All over Holy Scripture, this is something that's true, all over Holy Scripture, your approach to God's word says a lot about your approach to God. Uh, one of the things we used to say when I was doing RUF in Virginia, we would say, where do we stand in relationship to the Bible? Do we kind of put it down here and we kind of look down on it and stand on it and say, hey, you listen to me? Or do we kind of just go like, it's like kind of peers? Or do we go, let me be under it and teach, teach me. Teach me. They're saying we want to be oriented by how God has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. We want you to shape us. They're saying that we want our dreams and our desires, our hopes for the world and our hope for our life together to be oriented towards you, how you've engaged with the world, how you've instructed us and taught us. So anyway, Ezra teaches them and he breaks up them up into groups and he has others teach them. 
And, uh, and then the next day, they gather together, and actually, they start reading the Bible, and they're like, wait, this is the week where we're supposed to celebrate the Feast of Booths, because it's the seven month, seventh month, and that's when we're supposed to do that. Let's start doing that. They begin to orient their life. But even in that time, what they're doing is they're reading the scriptures together, and they're studying together. They're feasting, and they're celebrating, but they're devoting themselves to God's word. Let me read near the end here. It says this. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Josh, Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now I want to shift, okay? I want to shift and say, okay, so what they did is they said, teach us your ways, Lord. Just like we sang. Teach us from Holy Scripture. But what we actually also see here in this chapter is it immediately began to actually orient them. It immediately began to shape them. And it does this in a few ways. First, it does seem that their grief is turned into rejoicing. So verse 9, you know, it says this halfway through. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat. I love that part. Like a big ribeye. Um, and, and drink sweet wine. Like next month, the Nouveau Beaujolais comes out. And, and send portions to anyone who has, who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I mentioned this earlier, but you know, part, of, part of the role of the law of God is, that, is to convict us of sin. And so one of the things that they're seeing when they're hearing the law of God read is they're going, what have we done? Oh, exile was actually something that was promised for us if we didn't walk in the way of the Lord. The Lord has kept that promise. But he's also kept the promise that he would bring his people back. You know, they're, they're, they're thinking through and saying, we have erred. We've strayed from your ways like lost sheep, the things that we confess, right, all the time. And they're grieved, grieved by this. Um, Martin Luther's Shorter Catechism has a question. It says, what purpose does the law serve? And the first, it says, first, the law helps to control violent outbursts of sin and keep order in the world. A guide, a, a curb, um, a bridle. Uh, second, the law accuses us and shows us our sin. It's a mirror. You know, we look at it and we go, well, that's what we're doing? And then it, he says, third, the law teaches us Christians what we should and should not do to live a God-pleasing life. It's a guide for us. The power to live according to the law comes from the gospel. But here's the reality is that an effect of reading the scripture is actually at times you say, woe is me. What am I, what am I doing? God, I don't, I don't love your ways. This, I don't love this. And you grieve that as the Holy Spirit works within you. And that is a good effect, right? We should say, actually, that's a, that's, a fine, that's a good effect. But you don't get the Bible rightly if you end there, right? That's not the end. The end is to see how God's grace has just swallowed you up, how you're washed with the work of Christ, with the grace of God. Um, I mean, you don't read the law perfectly, even the, even the Ten Commandments. You don't read them perfectly unless you understand that they begin by saying, Hey, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you should have no other God before me. It begins with God's gracious act towards you for redeeming you from slavery and bringing you to himself. So, 
what, the, what first happens, though, is their grieving is turned into joy because they actually do move towards joy. The second thing that happens is their, their fear is turned into joy. You remember I highlighted this last week, but this book is full of fear. I mean, especially this first section, this first half. Um, chapter 2, Nehemiah says that he was afraid when he went before the king, right? Um, chapter 4, the people are, there are afraid. Um, chapter 6, actually, fear is mentioned four separate times. It's just a major theme. You know that fear is a big, big deal. Um, and here, what you get is that it's not a fearful situation, but people are like, let's just celebrate. Let's camp out for a week together and put tents all over the city and, and study the Bible and eat lots together. <laughs> that's not very a fear. That's not a fearful situation, right? So their fear is turned into joy. But then there's another thing that happens, and that's that their greed is turned into generosity, right? Um, you, you probably remember, I hope you remember chapter 5 and how really ugly. Remember I said that, like, actually the, de- the, the conflict within the life of the church is actually more detrimental to the work than the conflict that comes from outside of the church, right? I mean, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17 that he prays that they would be one so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son, and our divisions actually harm the the mission of the gospel in the world. So there's all that going on. But what's happening there? Well, there's massive interest being charged. You might remember that Calvin said there should be a cap of 5% on interest charged, and there should be no interest ever charged to the poor. And... You know, there's this massive stuff that's going on, and it's all about greed. <laughs> it's all about greed. Here we actually see the opposite. Um, I can sh- sh- show you this in a couple different places. Um, actually, I will. Verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Right? Hey, we're all supposed to be in this together. Have some of this fatty meat and wine. Verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions. Right? That's what they're doing. They're like, how can I take what I have and give it away so that other people can participate in this joy? Just three chapters after this greed is highlighted, what seems to be really present here is just incredible generosity. So what happens when we give ourselves to the word of God? Well, at least from this passage, I think these things happen. Our grief is turned into rejoicing. Our fear is turned into joy. And our greed is turned into generosity. But here's where I'm going kind of with all of this. Um, you become what you give your attention to. It's, it's true. You become what you give your attention to. You are always being shaped. You're always being oriented in your life towards something. And the question that we all have to ask is, what is that? Where are my desires going? Um, How's my language being shaped, right? What community am I being a part of? Whether it's in person or online, it doesn't really matter. Like, how is that shaping me and how I exist in the world? I mean, it is being shaped. uh, The amount of time that we give to Holy Scripture or to our life together or to worship shapes us some. And the amount of time we devote to all these other things also shape us. And so it's just worth you asking yourself, where am I putting my time? Where's my attention going? And how's that shaping me? We become what we give our attention to. What we see in the Lord Jesus is someone, think about this from Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So the place of fear 
actually, it's, uh, I mentioned this to you here, uh, just last week. Um, in place of the deepest fear, fear of abandonment from friends, of betrayal from your dearest friends, a place of torture, of course, but a place of death. The places where we might say all of our greatest fears are summed up here in the cross, Jesus says that's going to become a place of joy. What we see in the Lord Jesus is that generosity is without bounds. Second um, Corinthians chapter 8, um, he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He says, I'm going to give up that you might gain. Just generosity without bounds in the Lord Jesus. So, so as we think about, like, what does it mean to build a community, that we have to face this question, like, what's shaping us? What kind of community do we even want to be? Where are we placing our attention? Who are we becoming as individuals? And how does that fact actually shape our communal life? Because they're all intertwined. And what I'm suggesting to you is that as we consider the word of God as written, we will actually become to mirror the word of God as in flesh. Because the word of God actually shows us the beauty of our Lord. Who kept the law perfectly. Who walked perfectly in the ways of God. And so what we want to do is we want to build a building whose cornerstone is Jesus. We just build from him. We build off of him and in his likeness. Let's build a community that knows our sin but far more rejoices in the fact that it has been forgiven. Let's build a community that knows reasons for fear. There are reasons to fear in the world, right? But knows that perfect love casts out fear. Um, let's build a, a community that knows the temptations to be greedy. And maybe we can confess them together. You know, I know my temptation to take, to consume, to have for myself. But we know even more that the Lord gives. And he even tells us, in Acts chapter 20, it's better to give than to receive. So we give generously because we've received all things from our generous Lord. What I'm suggesting to you is this, that as we give our attention and orient ourselves towards the word of God, we will be shaped in light of the word of God to become like the living flesh of Jesus. All right. Uh, in 2010, the third Lausanne conference took place in Cape Town. Maybe some of you remember that happening. It was sort of a big deal with international Christian uh, ministries and whatnot. Um, 4,000 Christian leaders from around the world gathered in Cape Town from 198 countries. I always just find it wonderful to think that there's 198 countries where there's Christians. Like, let's work together. <laughs> what a wonderful thing. But there in that city, and you probably know this, where there was enforced segregation in Cape Town. I mean, apartheid has had a horrible, horrible effect down in Cape Town. But in that city of all places, these Christians, they gathered together, and they made a document, this Cape Town Confession. Said, what are we aiming towards? What are we to believe as the global church? And, and how are we to be in the world? And what are we to do? And, um, you know, it touches on all kinds of things. I'd highly recommend it to you. Um, it it talks about some really practical things, too, like human trafficking and poverty and, and media consumption. But I want to read to you two little sections. One is about the Word of God, the Bible. And then one is about Christian witness. Let me actually start with the Christian witness part. It says this, The people of God either walk in the way of the Lord or walk in the ways of other gods. 
The Bible shows that God's greatest problem is not just with the nations of the world, but with the people he has created and called to be a means of blessing to the nations. And the biggest obstacle to fulfilling that mission is idolatry among God's own people. For if we are called to bring the nations to worship the only true and living God, we fail miserably if we ourselves are running after the false gods of the people around us. When there is no distinction in conduct between Christians and non-Christians, for example, in the practice of corruption and greed, of sexual promiscuity, the rate of divorce, the, re the, the relapsing to pre-Christian religious practices, attitudes towards people of other races, consumeristic lifestyles, social prejudices, then the world is right to wonder if our Christianity makes any difference at all. Our, mes our message carries no authority, no authenticity to a watching world. This is the paragraph I want to read from the section on the Word of God. And actually, it's, it, it's titled, Why We Love God's Word. It says, We love God's Word in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, echoing the joyful delight of the psalmist in the Torah, I love your commandments more than gold. Oh, how I love your we receive the whole Bible as the Word of God, inspired by God's Spirit, spoken and written through human authors. We submit to it as supremely and uniquely authoritative, governing our belief and our behavior. We testify to the power of God's Word to accomplish His purpose of salvation. We affirm that the Bible is the final written Word of God, not surpassed by any further revelation. But we also rejoice that the Holy Spirit illumines the minds of God's people so that the Bible continues to speak God's truth in fresh ways to every people in every age. My hope for us as we think, what does it mean for us to rebuild as a church, to build in new ways, is that we would devote ourselves to the Word of God. That we would find in it life and joy that we really could say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. Oh, how it gives life. Uh, Psalm 119 says, to my bones. That is the approach that we need to have towards Holy Scripture. And brothers and sisters, as we do this, one of the gifts that happens is that we become more and more like our Lord. And we all know that Jesus is amazingly attractive. All kinds of people went to, to Jesus because they found in him the one who turned sorrow into joy, right? Fear into joy. Greed into generosity. And all those things we want to say like the people here in Nehemiah 8. Amen. Right? Amen. We all want a world like that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. And we're, we're thankful. We're thankful that you speak to us. And that you don't leave us without witness. We think of these people who read the law and they said, yeah, we need to recount the deeds of the Lord, how he brought his people through the desert from feasts to booths. Lord, uh, we delight in what you've done for us in Jesus Christ on the cross and resurrection. We pray that we would look upon him or that we would see him, that we wouldn't find in the Bible our life, but in the one to whom the Bible points as we study it and digest it and meditate on it. God, we do think of the prophet uh, Ezekiel being told to eat the scroll, even John on the island of Patmos taking to eat. I pray that um, 
that you would delight in your word, that you would consume it and be shaped by it, and that we would see Christ more fully and more lovely in every Pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.